Well, we're in Matthew 13 and 14 today. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at several parables that Jesus taught in Matthew 13. These parables help to explain different responses to the gospel. Jesus points out that there will be some negative responses and some, well, superficially positive responses and, and then some eternally positive responses. Those parables also help to explain the nature of Christ's kingdom. Remember, like a mustard seed, it starts small. It's hidden. It's underground, below the surface. And it grows slowly, subtly, sometimes imperceptibly. But it grows surely. It grows inevitably. Christ's kingdom will become global and glorious. And yet, with that promise in mind, don't forget it starts small. It's like farming. It takes patience. There are plenty of seeds that never germinate, that never take root, that never grow up. And there are plenty of weeds out there. But I want you to keep in mind those parables and that teaching as we read on in Matthew 13 and into chapter 14 today. Here, Matthew begins a new but related section of his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. In this section, like others before it, highlight responses to Jesus, various responses to Jesus. Notice in your Bibles, in Matthew 13, in verse 53... After teaching the parables that came before, Jesus heads to his hometown where he grew up to people who have known him his whole life. And in light of the parables that came before, in light of the varied responses to the gospel that Jesus has just been teaching about, we might rightly wonder what kind of response will we see from these people who have known him all his life. The passage then goes on to give another snapshot, one in a palace. And we wonder there, what kind of response can we expect from those who are on high in lofty positions? Well, that's a quick overview. Let's read it. Chapter 13, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Well, here we have two distinct scenes. They're related. They happen, you can see, chapter 14, verse 1, about the same time. And they certainly share some themes. They're held together by this shared theme of prophetic rejection. Jesus and John both are referred to as prophets in these two scenes. And both are variously rejected. In these two scenes, there are two cases of mistaken identity. Two cases of mistaken identity. As we'll see, apart from one glimmer of a positive, encouraging response from the disciples of John the Baptist, the rest of the passage focuses on rejection, opposition, mistaken identity, people being offended, being distracted by all the wrong things, and even turning murderous. It's a dark, sad, pathetic passage, really. Unless we learn from it, unless we heed the warning of it, unless we apprehend Jesus aright. So here's the first scene. Jesus rejected in his hometown. Jesus rejected in his hometown. Jesus was, of course, born in Bethlehem. And then after a little detour to Egypt, the family eventually returned to their home in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Nazareth at the time when Jesus was growing up, was a small village in Galilee to the north, a small rural town of about 400 people. 400 people. Can you picture a town like that? Most of us haven't had much experience with a town like that. That's where Jesus came from. Rural people, uneducated people, poor people. Remember that in John chapter 1, when Philip had an encounter with Jesus, he went and fetched his brother Nathaniel. And, and Philip says to Nathaniel, I've found the promised one, the one the prophets wrote about. It's Jesus of Nazareth. To which Nathaniel, his brother, responded, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
I think of that whenever we drive to Kentucky, where most of our kids live these days, and we drive through Indiana, and we pass an exit for a small town, French Lick, Indiana. It's a weird name, I know. But I think to myself with a smile, can anything good come out of French Lick, Indiana? Larry Bird did. Larry Bird did. In fact, it was a small village outside of French Lick, Indiana that Larry Bird was from. You get the point. Nazareth was like that, a small backwoods town. And its small size would mean that everyone knew everyone and everyone knew everything about everyone. So when Jesus showed up back in Nazareth after a year or more away, he did there what he had been doing wherever he went, teaching. He was teaching about the kingdom. He was proclaiming, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was no doubt in his teaching, strongly implying for those who had ears to hear that he was the promised one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And how will these familiar people respond? With rejection. They were incredulous. Verse 54 says they were astonished. A word that can be either positive or negative, just like our English word astonished. But here, obviously, it's negative. They were floored. He said, what? He said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? That's an important question. Where did he get his teaching and authority and miraculous power? What's the source behind it all? It's an important question, but they are asking it incredulously, rhetorically, skeptically. They are saying, he sure didn't get all that stuff from us in Nazareth. He sure didn't get it from the rabbis or the scribes or some special school. And he sure didn't get it from heaven. They're essentially asking, who does this guy think that he is? Which is basically what they say next. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? They knew Joseph the carpenter. This is his boy, right? Didn't Joseph and his son Jesus fix our gate back in 25? (laughs) Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Of course. The Nazarenes knew Jesus' family. They knew Jesus. They knew all his siblings. They even knew them by name. And yes, Jesus had siblings. Half-brothers and sisters, technically. We Christians believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, so he didn't have Joseph as a biological father. But that reality doesn't mean that after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary didn't have 
normal marital relations and children from those relations. They had at least six other kids besides Jesus. So here is a misconception that we have to clear up. Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, teaches Mary's perpetual virginity, as they call it. In other words, that Mary remained a virgin her whole life. And so they assume that the brothers and sisters mentioned here must be Joseph's kids from a previous marriage way older than Jesus. They get that from a second century document called the Proto-Evangelium of James, which is rightly not in our Bibles, neither is it in Catholic Bibles. So rather than believe a made-up doctrine, rather than concoct a strange marital situation between Joseph and Mary, which is never once mentioned in the actual Bible, isn't it just easier and safer to take the plain reading of a passage like this and believe that Jesus had siblings born of Joseph and Mary, and Mary was not a perpetual virgin? you got to wonder what else they're not telling the truth about. Well, that's not the point of our passage, but it is worth pointing out. What is the point of our passage? Look at verse 57. They took offense at him. They were scandalized by his words and, and his works. They were offended at the gall of this guy. You've heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, that's what's going on here. And Jesus' response to them makes this clear. Verse 57 in the middle, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This was a proverbial saying of the day. It was true not only of Jesus, but really of anyone who gets famous and influential beyond their hometown. There's something about proximity and familiarity that makes us say about someone who we grew up near and is now famous and big time. We say, well, he's not all that. He thinks he's special, but we knew him. Someone might say, I changed his diapers. So get this, the Nazarenes dismissed Jesus precisely because they knew Jesus. They saw Jesus. They were around Jesus. They, they scoffed at Jesus because of their proximity to Jesus. In their case, they saw too much. And once again, we come back to this almost weekly once again, in case anyone thinks that they would believe in Jesus, if only they could see him with their own eyes, if only they could hear him, if only they could touch him, well, these people are once again proof that that just isn't true. These people assume that the promised one, the Messiah, the King, 
couldn't be one of us. He can't be the Messiah because we, we know him. We know his family. We know his background. We, we know where he comes from. He lived right there. No doubt their idea of the Messiah emphasized, like so many other people in this day, their idea of Messiah emphasized the, the regal, the, the powerful, the majestic, the, the mighty. And they couldn't comprehend a Messiah who was poor from backwoods Nazareth. And so... The result, verse 58, Jesus did not do many works there because of their unbelief. That's an astounding statement, isn't it? It's not that Jesus was hindered from doing the miraculous there, like there wasn't enough you know, good spirit in the air to, to boost up his power not that he couldn't do miracles there. It's that he wouldn't do any miracles there. Because what's the point? If they rejected his teaching, then they would have no explanation for any miracles. The miracles in the Gospels don't serve as bare demonstrations of power. If if someone in this room blew something up over there and this girl over there levitated herself, we would just go, what is going on? I, I don't understand. And we would probably assume something demonic was happening or who knows? We, it's just, that's weird. We need explanation. The miracles, the teaching, they go together. The miracles affirm and confirm the teaching. And so without them beginning to be open to the teaching, Jesus says, no miracles for you. Now what should we learn from a passage like this? Well, we should learn that the Messiah, God's King, the Savior of the world, does indeed come from lowly origins. God works in surprising and seemingly upside-down ways. He always has. That's been the way all through the Bible. From little last-born David to Jesus, born in a manger. We should remember that from this hometown visit, we should remember that unbelief is really powerful. An animal will chew off a limb to get out of a cage. And people will come up with some weird explanations and make strange excuses to not believe when the truth is staring them right in the face. We learn from this passage that Jesus stands in a long line of God-sent prophets who were rejected by God's people. Jesus is more than just another one of these prophets. No, he is the ultimate one, the final one. But he's in that line. 
as Jesus will say, of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to them. Or as Stephen, Deacon Stephen, as he puts it, sometime after Jesus' rejection and crucifixion, he says in Acts 7, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So that's where this is all going. The cross. And Matthew 14 foreshadows it. Jesus' hometown rejection is writing on the wall of what's ahead. His hometown rejection is completely consistent with all the Old Testament foreshadows and foretelling that came before. We also learn from this passage then as Jesus' followers, as his messengers, that we shouldn't be surprised when his message is still rejected today. We shouldn't be surprised when we, like him, are dismissed or ridiculed even by those who are closest to us, who have known us all our lives. And as we remember all of that, then especially for those of us who know this stuff well and have known it for many years, we should also take heed of the potential dangers of familiarity in proximity to Jesus. We must be on guard that we don't get used to him and yawn about him. We might find ourselves actually dismissing him. That's the first scene. Jesus rejected by his hometown. Now we come to the second scene. John beheaded by Herod. Look down at the first couple verses of chapter 14. Let me read these again. At that time, while that was going on, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now track with me here. Verses 1 and 2 are the conclusion of this second scene. The conclusion is put by Matthew right up front so we wouldn't miss it. And if you look down, notice verses 3 all the way to verse 12 are actually a backtrack in time to explain verses 1 and 2. Do you see that? The rest of the passage is all backstory. You see verse 3, for Herod had, past tense, seized John and put him in prison. It's all a bit complicated to follow, to be honest. In fact, if you look at verse 4, there's actually a backtrack within the backtrack. Do you see that? Verse 4, because John had been saying, that's previous to what happened in verse 3. So Matthew is not giving us simple 
linear chronology here. He's, he's starting with the conclusion, and then he's telling us the backstory, especially for those of us who wouldn't know this story of the interactions of John the Baptist and Herod. So let me piece it together for you. Let me give it to you in chronological order, if I might. And by the way, me doing that is not monkeying with the Bible, but simply teaching it to you. Let, let me just straighten out the, the, the backtracking and just put it in, in order for you. Let me tell you up front that the Herod referred to here is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, the Herod that was around at the time of Christ's birth, the one who was the butcher of the sons of Bethlehem. Herod Antipas, his son, was a king over one-fourth of his father's territory. That's what it means, tetrarch. Now, the whole Herodian family was a real piece of work. They were power-hungry and wicked. They were famous for all kinds of unspeakable things and twisted maneuvers. They were half Jew and half Edomite. And so they cozied up to the Romans as much as it was advantageous for them. And yet they also played up their Jewishness for the Jews. That's why Herod the Great and Herod Antipas uh, took that title, King of the Jews. Herod Antipas had an affair and, uh, and then married his brother Philip's wife. Her name was Herodias. You see that in verse 3. Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. An affair, divorces, and marriage. John the Baptist had been publicly preaching against that marriage. Verse 4, John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And notice that John here uses the language of Old Testament law. It is not lawful for you. That's what he says as he rebukes the king. And I point that out because we may wonder how much of John's example we should imitate today. For instance, should pastors be preaching against the immorality of public secular figures? Well, there are some factors to keep in mind. Remember that John was rebuking the so-called king of the Jews. He was pointing him back to Old Testament law. It is not lawful for you to do this. Apparently, John the Baptist wasn't dishing out public rebukes of Caesar's misdeeds in Rome. So we shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. We should call them to repentance and offer them the forgiveness of grace that comes in Jesus Christ. But I'm not so sure we should. 
be calling out unbelievers who act like unbelievers. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, what business do I have judging outsiders? And so that's not exactly what John the Baptist was doing here with Herod. He wasn't judging an outsider, but one who pretended himself to be an insider. Just keep those things in mind. Back to the chronology. Herod had John imprisoned to shut him up. John the Baptist was bad press for him. In fact, it was his wife who was behind all this. Verse 3, he did it for the sake of Herodias. John's imprisonment had been mentioned already a couple of times in Matthew so far. In chapter 4, verse 12, we hear that he was arrested. In chapter 11, verse 2, we find that John had been imprisoned when he sent his disciples to ask Jesus pertinent questions. Now, Herod wanted to have John executed, but, but he didn't. Verse 5 tells us why. Because he feared the people. Watch the fear element with this guy. It pops up again. He didn't have him executed because he feared the people. But then we come to Herod's birthday. That fateful day. No doubt, lavished food, many guests, much wine, and provocative entertainment. Verse 6, the daughter of Herodias, in her mid to late teens danced before the company. That was no doubt a sensual dance. And it pleased Herod, it says. It pleased Herod so much, he rather hastily, and probably as a, a boastful display of his power and authority, which actually he didn't have that much of in these days, he promised the girl anything she wanted, and he promised it with an oath. Her mom seized the opportunity and told her daughter to ask, well, demand for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod was now stuck. He didn't want to execute John, but there was the oath and the oath in front of the guests, verse 9. And so to save face, he acquiesced. And John's head was taken off. And out came John the Baptist's head on a platter at a dinner party. It's disgusting. This is actually where we get that phrase, head on a platter. We, we hear it in even contemporary pop culture today. As far as I know, this is the first time anyone's ever thought of such a thing. The platter was brought to the teenage girl, verse 11, and she presented it like a gift to her mother. This is the end for the great prophet, John the Baptist, the forerunner, of the Messiah. It is sad. It is pathetic. It is 
It is twisted. It is messed up stuff. And it happens in this tragic convergence of, of sin and a desire to silence and fear and multiplied fears and sensuality and people-pleasing and face-saving and pride and violent murder. Now, to finish the backtrack, see, see verse 12. The disciples of John the Baptist then came and took his body, and they buried it. And they went and told Jesus. There's the one bright spot in this dark passage of two prophetic rejections. John's disciples cared for his slain, headless body. And buried him with respect. And then they went to Jesus. They went to Jesus. Do you remember the questions they came to Jesus with in chapter 11? John sent them asking Jesus, Are you really the one or should we wait for another one? John and his disciples at that time back in chapter 11 wondered, doubted. It didn't seem like Jesus was filling the bill of the Messiah. And Jesus told them, tell John what you see. The dead are raised, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Tell John to not be offended by me. Well, it would seem that after the death of John the Baptist, when the disciples went to Jesus, that their questions, their dilemma, their wondering was no longer looming. Where else can they go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. But now, in light of all that, now we're ready to hear the conclusion, the whole point in why Matthew is telling this. Again, verses 1 and 2. Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Unbelief is astoundingly stubborn. It gets remarkably creative in order to not own up to the truth. An animal will chew off its limb to get out of a cage, and Herod thought it easier to believe in a resurrected John the Baptist than to take Jesus' miracles at face value. Here is a man plagued with guilt and fear. He's about going mad. Now I want you to see that this complicated story, with all its twists and turns, this complicated story about Herod and John the Baptist is really about who? Jesus. It's really about Jesus. Jesus. The reason Matthew told us all this gross backstory surrounding the birthday and the beheading of John 
is to tell us that Herod had been hearing about Jesus and his miracles and his teaching, and he went to great lengths to not own up to that, to not own up to him. He'd rather believe in ghost stories. Jesus is the point of the story. He is what is keeping Herod awake at night, and he is where the disciples of John go to when it's all said and done. But, but let's not put John aside just yet. The passage is about Jesus, but let's not put John aside just yet. Let's take in the sad, tragic reality of his death. We all die, of course. But this isn't how any of us would want to die. This isn't how heroes are supposed to die. John was caught in a twisted web of weird people and weird circumstances at a weird birthday party. And all because he was faithful to rebuke the king and to call him back to God's ways. Now Drew, last week, he mentioned Jim Elliott the missionary to the Alka Indians in the 1950s. Uh, Drew mentioned him to quote that great, that great line from Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot said that before he was killed and cannibalized by the very people he was preaching to. Many Christians know that, but many of us don't know that it was actually several decades after Jim Elliot's death that it was just, it was discovered how, how strange the circumstances were that led to the death of these five missionaries. It wasn't mere rejection of the missionaries. It wasn't just in opposition of their message. Details of what came about, what conspired to come about to their death, it became clear it was a tragic confluence of, of tribal rumors and infighting and falsehoods and jealousies in the tribe and vendettas unrelated to the missionaries. It was more like a mishap than a martyrdom. It was more like a misunderstanding than your average murder. And yet, and yet now, decades later, consider how God has used their sad, seemingly tragic murder to further his kingdom, to invigorate and empower people to to leave home and go to far away, dangerous places with the gospel, to risk life and limb that others might hear and others might know. How many have been persuaded to do so because Jim Elliott and four other men were willing to die for the gospel? God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm 
And so we judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but we trust Him for His grace because behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. And that was proved true in the seemingly senseless murder of five missionaries among the Alka Indians in 1956. And that was proven true in the seemingly senseless beheading of John the Baptist in Matthew 14. And it proved true in the cruel, seemingly senseless crucifixion of Jesus. So we have these two stories in Matthew 14, two stories of prophetic rejection to tell us as we read Matthew what's to come, what we can expect as we read on. Rejection is actually the way. Rejection will be more common than not. The lowly Nazarenes rejected Jesus for being too common and too familiar. And lofty Herod rejected John and Jesus. And he would rather believe in ghosts than own up to Jesus. There's a word for this with these extremes. It's, uh, this is a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. I couldn't remember the word. Alex reminded me of it this week. These are, it's a literary device, two extremes to represent the whole. The lowly Galileans reject Jesus, even though they're up close. And lofty Herod from far away rejects Jesus and John. Again, it's all about Jesus. And yet, seemingly the whole world is against him from top to bottom. The writing is on the wall. And Jesus will put it like this in just a few chapters in Matthew 17. He'll say, Elijah has already come. And here he's referring to John the Baptist who came in an Elijah-like prophet way as the forerunner of the Messiah. So he says to his disciples, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. They did to him whatever they pleased. So also, the Son of Man, Jesus, will certainly suffer at their hands. A great prophetic line of rejected prophets. And that's how we know that Jesus was a true prophet. Not because he had it easy, but because he was rejected. He did suffer at their hands. He died on the cross and yet was raised. And now from, from our vantage point on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we actually now know that we needed a rejected Savior. We needed a king who would die because he died in our place. His death was no accident, no tragedy, no mishap. Despite the strange confluence of circumstances surrounding Jesus' accusations and rejection and crucifixion, 
from the tensions between the Jews and the Romans and the, and the trumped-up charges against Jesus and, and the inconsistent witnesses about those charges, despite all that, no, actually, through all that, God was bringing about our salvation. This is the means by which the problem of sin and separation from God gets solved. This is how God would forgive our sins. This was the plan all along. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Do you believe that today? Have you put your hope in that? In this kind of king, in this kind of savior? Have you come to the end of yourself have you come to the end of your propped up objections to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus? If not, will you today? What stands in the way? Aren't you tired of pushing and rejecting and coming up with another reason to not believe in him? I've heard people tell me crazy reasons for why they won't believe in Jesus. One guy years ago said, I'd never become a Christian because they take up offerings at churches. I said, well, we don't in our church. We have offering boxes at the back. He goes, ah, still, you're just, you're getting the money. I said, well, how do you think church buildings get paid for? Like, what? What do you want us to do? Meet in a tent? Someone's got to pay for the tent. It'd be a big tent for us all to meet in. That's your objection? Ah. Others will say, I think I heard somewhere that Jesus had a girlfriend or had a wife. I saw the Da Vinci Code. That's why I'm not a Christian. You've got to do better than that. Aren't you tired? Don't you love that line in the movie, The Help? Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? Do you know that? It's not quite the exact situation as the way I'm using it here, but Miss Hilly is self-righteous and all about herself and angry at everyone. And I forgot who it is, but The, the Help. She says, ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? I ask you today, aren't, aren't you tired? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And Christian, you have come to Jesus. He has befriended you and saved you, forgiven you and reconciled you to God. But don't be surprised when today these days, when, when Jesus is well represented to the world and then rejected by them. Don't be surprised. Remember the parables of Matthew 13. 
there will be various responses to the seed of the gospel, like four soils. Remember that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's, it's small. It, it, it goes below the ground. It, it doesn't look special or powerful, but it grows in surprising and unexpected ways. And it grows. That growth is slow, but sure. It is sure. It is inevitable. So as we, as Christ representatives, as we throw seed in this world, every now and then we will see new sprigs of life rise up. Every Christian in this room and every Christian in every Christian church around the world meeting this morning is a testimony, is proof that the seed is going out and it is getting roots and it is growing up. Jesus is growing a global kingdom. And already birds from all over the world are nesting in the branches of the tree of his kingdom. And the branches still need to reach further. There's still more birdies out there who are not Resting in the nest of the kingdom of Christ. And so we just keep seeding. We just keep spreading. We just keep going. We let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And remember, whatever it costs, the kingdom is worth it. The kingdom is worth it. It is worth everything and anything that we could ever give up or have taken from us, even our very lives, even our heads. The kingdom is like a treasure. It's like the one pearl. And so there's nothing we can give up or lose that would outweigh the worth and joy of gaining his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you once again for your word and for your kingdom, Lord Jesus. And, and once again, we thank you for your word doing its work in its various ways. With this passage, it warns. It warns us against unbelief. Help us to see Jesus, to flee to him to believe in him and to speak of him until you take us home to glory. We pray in your name, amen.